this morning we're going to be looking at Cornelius and his conversion. Uh, this is going to be part one of the conversion of Cornelius. Next week we'll, we'll look at part two. But follow along as I read uh, Acts chapter 10 and we'll be going down through verse 1 to 29. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw a vision uh, in a he saw in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, he had departed. He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among them who attended him, those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approached the city, Peter went up on the housetop at the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners open upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, when Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen uh, might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for, uh, for Simon's house, stood at the gate and they called out and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to, to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for, for what is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation has directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers for, from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day he, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was ex- expecting them and had called, them together, had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown to me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Let's pray this morning. Oh, excuse me. Verse 29. For when I sent for 
For when I was sent for, I came without objection, and I asked then why you sent for me. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just praise you and ask that you would speak to us from your word. Lord, you have so much for us in your scriptures. I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight, but not just mentally, Lord. May this not just be an intellectual exercise, but something that nourishes our heart and and feeds our soul and uh, exhorts us and corrects us and challenges us where we need to be challenged, Lord. We ask that you would feed all of us here as your sheep today through the power of of your word. We ask that the Holy Spirit would come down now and join us in our midst and minister his word to us. In your name we pray. Uh, amen. I'm going to do something that I don't think we've ever done. I don't think I've ever done. I'm going to actually start the introduction with a video clip. I've never done this. I'm not a huge fan of video clips. But, Jason, would you mind getting up and turning off the row of light? Oh, Mike's, Mike's on his way. Okay. This is a clip from a TV show that was on about a decade ago called The West Wing. And uh, the main guy who's speaking, it's Martin Sheen playing uh, the president. And he's confronting someone uh, who is, has a radio show that talks about uh, the Bible. And I, and I want you to see this and see how he uses scripture. Uh, go ahead and play that. Uh, you got to turn the volume up and start it over. Turn the video volume up on the soundboard. Sorry. It's a good idea. Oh. We practiced, but... Practice it's more. a good idea to be reminded of the awesome impact. Turn the volume up on the computer. The awesome impact. I'm sorry. Uh, you're Dr. Jenna Jacobs, right? Yes, sir. It's good to have you here. Thank you. The awesome impact of the airwaves and how that translates into the furthering of our national discussions, but obviously also how it can... How it can... Forgive me, Dr. Jacobs. Are you an M.D.? A Ph.D. A Ph.D.? Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a Ph.D. in English literature. I'm asking because on your show people call in for advice and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or health care. I don't believe they are confused, no, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? 
Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? So, if you encountered somebody that rattled off a whole bunch of verses like that, what would you say? How would you respond? I trust you know that those verses are in Scripture. Scripture is is God-breathed. This is God's Word. Would we say to what he just said, you know, may the Lord bless the reading of his word? What do we do with that? And the, and the point wasn't so much to, you know, make a big deal about the TV show or whatever. The point is to say, you'll encounter people out there that think that's what we believe or think that we just pick and choose verses of Scripture and we ignore the ones that we don't like, but, but pay attention to ones that we, that we do like. How do we handle the Word of God. I have friends every now and then that are not Christians that will post this video on Facebook. And, and every time I see it, you want to scream and shout at, at President Bartlett, the guy that Martin Sheen is playing. Because there are answers to these things. But the way he humiliates the Christian there makes it look so smooth and easy. And he comes off being, appearing smart. How do we handle it? How do we handle the word of God? Uh, we're in the perfect passage of scripture to ask ourselves, how do we deal with this? How do we understand scripture and use the Bible in a way that is faithful to the Bible? Scripture interprets scripture. That's a, a principle that if that if the word of God is the highest and supreme authority, if it comes directly from God, as scripture itself testifies and, and it does not err, God cannot lie, then when we look at various passages of Scripture, one passage will invariably help us understand the other passage. The unclear passage to us will be explained or can be understood better by the clear passage. We need to see this morning, and this is our main point, that the gospel makes all food clean and breaks down barriers. Foods that were not clean in the Old Testament are now made clean. It's because in the Old Testament, these things were, were part of God's law. But as you look at the, the law in the various pages uh, in Leviticus and Numbers, you, you see that there are aspects of it that are ceremonial. There are aspects that are to be fulfilled in Jesus. Um, I hope this morning you all brought your goat to sacrifice, right? Did you bring your, your dove offering so we can go up and uh, out on the altar? out? But no, you didn't. Why? That's in the word of God. Shouldn't we be doing that? You understand implicitly Christ fulfills that. Christ is the, the true sacrifice. So we're not violating scripture or breaking a command of God when it tells the Old Testament saints who are looking forward to the coming of Christ and practicing these sacrifices as signs and symbols in anticipation of coming of Christ. Now that we've had Christ come, you look back and you say, of course, we don't have to do that. We're not breaking God's word. It's, it's been fulfilled. It's been brought to a completion. The same is true with the food laws and some of the other ceremonial laws, not, however, the moral laws like the Ten Commandments. 
So the gospel makes all foods clean and even breaks down uh, barriers between uh, the Jew and Gentile. First, this morning, God is bringing foreign Gentiles to be saved in Jesus. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are not very many foreigners outside of the land of Israel uh, that get saved. It's not that it was not part of God's plan. We talked about that this morning, that Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. But that you think of even um, when Jericho fell, there's Rahab, the prostitute, a Gentile, converting to the Lord Jesus Christ. God has always had a heart for the nations, but now even more so that he has brought the fulfillment of the gospel that Jesus Christ has been sacrificed outside the city gates at Jerusalem. And the gospel, the good news that Jesus says has begun to spread to, the, to Jerusalem and Judea in the book of Acts. Now it turns and it goes to the world so that all people might be saved. And God is the one bringing people to salvation. So we have here Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, verses 1 and 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually before God. So notice here, Cornelius is a soldier. This guy would have been battle hardened. You you did not become a centurion straight out of boot camp. Just like you don't become a major or a colonel or a general the minute you graduate from West Point. Uh, you've been around some. You've perhaps seen some, some combat. You've been through some very rigorous training. This is a, a tough guy. Okay? Uh, this soldier, battle-hardened, and yet his heart is being softened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, you notice that, that as a as a Roman, as part of the Italian uh, co- cohort here, he is most certainly, we can almost be completely sure, that he would have been a Gentile. Meaning, you know, in the Old Testament, you basically have two categories of people. Either you're Jewish, and you've converted to Israel, and you've become circumcised, and you've become part of the people of God, either you were born that way, or you converted to it, or you're Gentile. You're one or the other. And outside of the covenant and outside of trusting God, you, you cannot be saved. But in the Old Testament, the marks of joining the covenant were circumcision and the food laws and all of these things practiced in obedience. So here's this Gentile, this outsider, this Roman citizen, and perhaps, perhaps one not well liked by Jews given that he worked for the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was an occupying army in the nation of Judah. Um, Third, most soldiers were around or participated in idol worship, sacrificing to the gods, perhaps worshiping the empire. Before they would go into battle, they would uh, sometimes practice divination and and the reading of animal uh, entrails and, and disgusting things but but things that that are in violation of god's word and so you can you can imagine just morally uh, a jewish person encountering a a a roman soldier and they're the oppressor they're the bad guy they're the idol worshiper and here's one who is seeking god and has been praying to the living and true god and that's the last thing to notice that he's he hasn't yet fully converted 
In, in, the, in the Old Testament and in the, in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were these category of people called proselytes, Gentiles who would come and they would convert and they would become circumcised and take on all of the food laws and all of the, the, the Old Testament ceremonial laws, and they would say, look, I really believe in God. This guy is on the fringe. He, he believes in God. Uh, he is worshiping and praying to God. He is uh, helping out with the synagogue, giving alms to the poor. And yet there's an area of separation. If he would have went down to the temple, he could not go inside the temple. He'd be outside at the court of the Gentiles in the synagogue. He would have been at a separate corner of the synagogue where the Gentiles would sit to hear the word of God. Um, so he's still this outsider, but he's seeking the Lord and he fears the Lord and the Lord is working in his heart. And then God initiates the encounter. So the ninth hour, about three in the afternoon, says on the day he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God saying to him, Cornelius, and he stated to him, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Uh, this doesn't mean that Cornelius had somehow earned favor with God, that he'd somehow earned God's attention. But what it does mean is that Cornelius had a demonstrable faith. He was seeking God and had some kind of faith in God, and he was beginning uh, to live that out, even though he hadn't converted fully to Judaism. But he was interested in God and interested in his word, and God was hearing his prayers. God hears the prayers of a sinner when a sinner turns to him. God hears the prayers of the repentant who come uh, before him. God hears Cornelius' prayers. They, they ascend up into heaven. Cornelius then is, sent, uh, is told to send for Peter. And as he, uh, he says, Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon called Peter, who is lodging with one Simon a tanner by the house of the sea. What I want you to notice, though, is the grace of God in initiating the encounter. God is the one who sends this angel God is the one who sees Cornelius and says, this man has faith and he is searching for me. And, but God is the one who does not leave Cornelius in his darkness, who does not leave Cornelius wondering, can a Gentile like me be saved and be part of the people of God? So notice the grace of God in initiating this encounter, and that's an application for us. We need to believe that God can save and rescue sinners from their sin. It doesn't matter where someone comes from. It doesn't matter what their background. It doesn't matter their culture. It doesn't matter the sins in their past. It doesn't matter if they're in jail. It doesn't matter if they're rich. It doesn't matter if they drive a nice car, if they have no car. It doesn't matter. God saves sinners. And the only qualification a sinner has is they are a sinner. There's nothing that we come before God with that, that would merit us before God. God does not look down from heaven and say, there's a special person whom I need. He says, there's a sinner, and I'm going to save sinners. So even as we look at this and it says that your prayers and your alms have ascended before the Lord as a memorial, don't misunderstand you need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior to be forgiven of your sins and have your prayers heard before God. But the repentant person who is turning to the Lord, 
who God has opened their eyes and drawn them to him. Just as here is Cornelius wandering around, wanting to know more about God, doing faithfulness, obedience to the things that he does know from the word. And Cornelius is going to come and understand the fullness of the word of God, because God saves sinners. We should keep in mind that that this is, you know, this is right at the cusp of the New Testament where Jesus Christ just a few years earlier has died. The scriptures are continuing to be revealed. So all that Cornelius knows up to this point is the Old Testament or parts of it. And and God is going to show him the rest, that salvation is through the Lord Jesus Christ and, and that that he, too, a Gentile, can be saved. He's not the typical person that a Jewish Christian would have assumed is ready to hear the gospel. They would have said, this guy, he's a pagan. He's on the outside. The ceremonial law separates him from God. Are you sure he could really come to God's grace? Yes, every sinner can come to the grace of God because God is the one that draws the sinner. Because God is the one that reaches out and turns the heart of the sinner. Just as last week, God reached out and opened the eyes of Saul. Saul is the one that you would look at and almost think he's the Jew of the Jews. He is is following the law. He's a, a good guy by the standards of his age. He doesn't need a conversion. No, he's a sinner. And God has to open his eyes. Cornelius is the one who's this, this pagan, perhaps associated with idol worship in his past. And you would say, he's a sinner. How could God love someone like that? Think of how awful he is. My fear is that sometimes in the church, there are those of us who have largely grown up in the church. And we became converted maybe at a young age. We didn't have any big sins, any bold sins. We never did drugs. We never smoked. We barely speed in our cars. Uh, We were good Christians and came to know the Lord. And sometimes, and I include myself in this because I grew up in a Christian home, we're the people who look down on those who come from really bad backgrounds. People that have abortions in their background. People that have homosexuality in their background, people who have uh, murder or stealing or did time in prisons, people who cheat and lie and steal. And we look sometimes and we say, we're the good people who the Lord has loved and praise God for his grace. But we don't realize that the same grace of God that we have received is the same grace of God that those people need and they can receive if they hear the word of God And God draws them to himself. It wasn't us that brought ourselves to God. It was God drawing us. And God takes people who grow up in Christian homes and draws them to faith. And God takes people from the vilest, most wretched backgrounds and draws them to faith. And the reason he does that is so that we might praise the grace and the glory of God and not sit here and pat ourselves on the back and say, we were pretty good people. Thank goodness we believed in the Lord. God is going to save Cornelius. And in the eyes of the Jewish people, he would have been pretty vile in that context. Don't ever assume 
that a person is not ready to hear the gospel because there is no precondition that someone has to be at before they can hear the gospel or you can share it with them. It is in the sharing of the word, no matter what the person's condition, that God can beam down that light that opens their eyes, converts their hearts, and draws them to faith. Uh, you can see that in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The only precondition that someone ever has before they're saved is they're a sinner. And that sinner means they can hear the grace of God. Second, this morning, God declares all food clean. So we're moving along and Peter needs to learn some things if he's going to go and, and be the one to witness to this Gentile. So, so Cornelius needs to understand some things. Peter needs to get uh, some things understood. So Peter is praying and he receives a vision. The next day they were on their journey approaching the city. Peter went up to the house, uh, housetop about the sixth hour to pray. This is, this is about noon. It's lunchtime. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he went and fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending and being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds. So so Peter's up there praying. He perhaps calls downstairs to whoever's in the kitchen and says, you know, I'm, I'm hungry. Can you make me something to eat? And and they're they're downstairs and I'm sure they're making a good kosher meal. No unclean food, which is a little bit ironic because Simon, the house that he's staying at, is a tanner. And, and if you touch dead skins, you're clean, unclean until evening. So I'm not totally sure what's going on here. Peter was actually okay being in the house. But, but I assume that he probably would have been being very careful that he didn't touch any unclean food. If an unclean, ceremonially unclean person, you know, Simon the tanner walks in, didn't wash his hands. It's not evening yet. He just had been touching uh, a tanning hide out back. If he walks in, touches some clean food, suddenly the food is ceremonially unclean. So whatever Peter's doing, I think he must have been on his guard, just knowing how Peter's responding and acting. So they're downstairs, they're, they're frying up some whatever they make, I don't, I don't know, uh, kosher, whatever. And, and Peter goes into this trance and the sheet comes down and there are all kinds of animals in it. And they are all, uh, the scriptures doesn't tell us this, but we, we pick this up just from what's going on, that they are all the unclean animals. Uh, the animals with the wrong kind of hoofs, the the fish, uh, the shellfish that don't have scales would have been unclean. So maybe he sees lobster and crabs and um, pigs, you know, nice juicy, ham- well, not hamburgers, but, you know, ham hocks or, or whatever. Uh, maybe he sees some unclean insects in there, some some crows. Uh, how many would like to eat some crows this afternoon at the fellowship meal? Any no take. OK, well, it's all unclean. And and he is told then look at verse 13 and 14. And there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord. And, and you know, imagine the shock. Peter Peter's not just like by by no means, Lord. No, P- Peter. No, Lord, I, I can't do this. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, I, I assume, and, and maybe I'm reading a little bit between the lines here, but, but just give me a little bit of grace to do this. I assume that Peter probably thinks that the Lord is 
putting him to the test. He's in Simon the Tanner's house, so he's near some unclean stuff who would be ceremonial and clean at various points. And, and perhaps this is one of those tests where the Lord says, do this and, and you show your faithfulness by saying, no, God, I, of course, God, I'm, I'm the good Christian. I keep your word. I, I don't think he's rebuking God here. I, th- I think he's sincere. That, God, I, I wouldn't break your word. None of us, you know, on our best days want to consciously break God's word. And, and we need to understand that, that these things are in God's word, these food laws. Um, Leviticus 11. I, I was going to read a whole bunch. I'm, I'm just going to give you the, the highlights. I'll, I'll read one or two verses. But anything in the seas or the, the rivers that does not have fins or scale or swarming creatures in the waters or the living creatures or in the, that are in the waters, it is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not eat their carcasses. And it goes through things that don't have fins, things that don't have scales. And it goes into birds, eagles, bearded vultures, black vultures, crows, anything that eats uh, dead flesh. Vultures do that. Don't eat them. Any winged insects that are on all fours, don't eat them. Because, you know, we're all going out saying, what bugs can I eat today? Um, In the Old Testament, they would have been. Um, But all of this, it says, consecrate yourself as holy. Be holy as I am holy, for you shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. And we could go on, but you can see it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Right. This is in Scripture. It's God breathed. It's inspired. It is applicable for the Old Testament periods under the ceremonial law. And Peter assumes it's God's word. I can't break it. Exodus, or excuse me, Leviticus chapter 20. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and my rules and do them in the land where I am bringing you, that you may live in it and not vomit you out. For you shall not walk in the customs of the nations, and I am driving out before you. For they did these things, therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing of milk and honey. I am the Lord, your God, who separated you from the peoples. Notice that I separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast and the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall make yourselves not make yourselves detestable by beast or bird or anything which crawls on the ground, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. And the reason is. It marked them ceremonially before God. It said, we're not like the nations that follow the idols. Now, the issue was the heart. Don't follow the idols in your heart. But outwardly, for a time, these ceremonies helped you guard that. And Peter figures, hey, I'm going to keep obeying God's word. You think of Daniel. He's in Babylon and he's in the king's courts and and there's wine and there's beef. You know, there is good, solid meat. But Daniel says we can't eat this. And, and one of the reasons Daniel is only on a vegetable diet is you know, you're allowed to eat meat, some meats in the Old Testament. But w- what we assume to be true is that that given what we know, the kings were probably sacrificing the wine and the meat before the idols taking it then from the idol temple or whatever, and then bringing it to the table. So you're not just eating meat and perhaps unclean meat. Even the stuff that would be clean normally is unclean because you put it before an idol. And Daniel draws a line in the sand. And and maybe Peter, maybe one of his Bible heroes was Daniel. I don't know. 
But this would have been more than just a, a dietary fad for the people, for Peter. During the time of the Maccabees, a time in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there were Gentiles that were killing Jewish people because they were keeping the law. People went to their death because they didn't want to worship a pagan idol that Antiochus Epiphanes erected in the temple in Jerusalem. People went to their death because they refused to corrupt themselves with the food and eat the food that was unclean and or had been sacrificed to idols. They died for it. And these are people that Peter would have grown up hearing the stories of. And and so it's natural for him to say, I'm not going to eat. But notice what God says in verse 15 and 16. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing that was taken up at once to heaven. I think it happens three times because remember how many times uh, Peter denies Jesus three times and then the Lord restores him three times. I, I think having it happen again three times would have, would have sunk into Peter. Now, he still is not quite sure what to make of this. He still says he's pondering these things. He's perplexed by it. But I think the three is, is significant. God has made clean. What God has made clean, do not call common. So take your minds back to that clip that we saw at the beginning. All those Old Testament verses were thrown out very quickly, rambling off references. And it is the word of God. But the Old Testament has things in it that were for the times of the Old Testament under the ceremonial law. We don't make tabernacles and temples today because Jesus fulfills them. We don't need to to carry out some of the civil functions of, of government inside the church because that was for when Old Testament Israel was a nation, when the people of God were also a, a nation around other nations. You've got to have a, a punishment system, just like our civil government today has a system of laws and punishment. But then we have aspects of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, worshiping God alone, not lying, not stealing, all of those things continue to apply. And many times, and uh, all of them are repeated, except the Sabbath day, all of them are repeated in the New Testament. But I want you to recognize this. How do we, how do we put this together? How would you answer someone if, if they cornered you, maybe at your job, and, oh, well, you're a Christian, but do you know what the Old Testament says? Do you know about Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers? And you, you, some of you younger people might go to college, and you'll, you'll get a... a person, uh, a studied person, and, and maybe a liberal, and they like to mock Christianity, and, and they'll throw these, oh, do you even know what's in your Bible? I want you to one time maybe just be like, I think I remember pastor preaching a sermon on this. Jesus is the answer to these problems. Let me say that again. Jesus is the answer to these problems, or at least these questions, and I say problems, that's what I mean. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth has passed away, not one iota or dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. In other words, we are not randomly taking our Bibles and picking out from the Old Testament things that we like and saying we're going to 
hammer these home and then ignoring the things that we don't like. I like a good lobster. I'm not just ignoring the shellfish passages because I like lobster. It, it is the scriptures that show us how to understand the scriptures. And Jesus comes along in, in Mark and he says, it's not what comes out of the or what goes into the body that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of the body. And, and Mark adds the little parentheses. And by this, Jesus declared all things clean. Peter has to learn that lesson again. Scripture shows us that what is the the ceremonial aspects of the law, they have been brought to fulfillment, to completion. We don't make earthly temples today because we're worshiping in the completed heavenly temple one day where Jesus ascended back up into heaven. So in one sense, Jesus has brought the word to fulfillment. In another sense, there is an aspect where the ceremonial laws it are abolished. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of, quote, the abolishing of the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create one new man in a place of the two. There were Jews and Gentiles, and they were separated in the temple by the courts and by the, the rules in the Old Testament. And God has abolished these commands so that Jew and Gentile can gather and worship and be one in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to these food laws and the ceremonial laws. And and I didn't I didn't look, but I'm probably pretty sure that at least something I'm wearing today is made of two different types of thread. You don't have to have a stoning ceremony because that is a ceremonial law. It demonstrated what cleanliness looked like and how you live separate from pagan nations. But now we see that cleanliness isn't about the ceremony. Although the ceremonies pointed to it, cleanliness is about the cleanliness that the Lord Jesus Christ brings through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus' death on the cross. And the ceremonial is fulfilled. And in that sense, it is put aside. We are under the new covenant. And in the new covenant, Jesus is the sacrifice. And in the new covenant, the old is made obsolete, but... God takes the the law, the scriptures, those moral components that are still good. And in the new covenant, he actually writes them into our hearts. You see, Peter had to learn that some of these old barriers were breaking down. I should have uh, asked, um, but usually we have a crab dip during... um, fellowship Sundays and uh, enjoy that today because that's clean now if you can if you can eat that uh, if you like crab the Bible teaches us how to interpret the Bible and Jesus shows himself to be the key I, I want you to if, if there's one thing you walk away from particularly from the second point is don't be intimidated if you ever encounter somebody that is like this President Bartlett character who rambles off these verses you're, you're probably not going to be able to debate the person point to point because usually they have a chip on their shoulder. But I, I just want you to be assured. Scriptures are the word of God. But scripture shows you how to handle Scripture. This is not some highfalutin hermeneutic that, that you know only the elite PhDs can figure out. This is listening to Jesus. 
And Jesus fulfills his word. I want you to see then, lastly this morning, that not only are the aspects of the ceremonial law broken down, but the barriers between peoples, between Jew and Gentile, between the races there, are broken down. And Peter has to learn that. So we have the men, they come looking for Peter, verses 17 and 18. We have Peter obeying the Spirit. The Spirit says in verse 20, Rise and go up and accompany them without hesitation, for I sent them. Peter comes into their presence. There's a crowd gathered. Cornelius has brought in relatives and close friends, verse 24, which, which, by the way, would have been a whole bunch of Gentiles, okay? You know, he is walking in to a Gentile house all around these unclean, ceremonially people. And they, Cornelius goes before him, bows down. Peter refuses worship. He says, stand up, I am a man. But I want you to see what Peter comes to understand about people. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone uh, of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. For I was sent for, I came without question, and then you sent for me. As Peter was pondering this revelation that he received, he realizes at some point God is teaching him more than just about food. It's important to know we can eat anything. It's important to know that we're not breaking God's word when we have uh, pork chops. But God wasn't just teaching Peter, go ahead and eat anything. He was teaching people, he was teaching Peter that the gospel is going to go to all people. And people aren't ceremonially unclean anymore that you have to stay away from them. Some of these things where it says, you know it is unlawful for a Jew, some of these things do come from the law. You have in Leviticus 20, verse 23, you shall not walk in their customs of the nation, which I'm driving out before you. Verse 24 of Leviticus 20, I am the Lord your God who separated you from the peoples. Some of these things, though, the Pharisees had compounded extra rules on top of, you know, don't, you know, not only separate yourself, but don't go into a house. Don't do this. You definitely would not sit down at a table with someone who was a Gentile. You wouldn't eat with them if you were Jewish because they're unclean. The food they touch is unclean. Your food would be unclean. Uh, the statistic was something like, and I wrote it down, um, of all the rules that the Pharisees had at the time that we've found, 341 rabbinic traditions from this period, 229 of them concerned eating and table fellowship specifically. This was a big deal that Peter went into this house and we assume is going to eat with them and gather with them. And Peter says, I had to learn that people are not unclean. That that was a ceremonial law. That was because, yes, people were pagans. And yes, we still have to be concerned today about moral issues. But even with that, people need to hear the gospel. And we need to take it to them. And Peter is learning that. Ephesians chapter 2, I read this already, talking about Jew and Gentile. Therefore, remember, at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision. This would have been what Cornelius was. 
But what is called but what is called the circumcision, which is made by what is you were called the uncircumcision by the circumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time. This is the Gentiles separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, uh, stranger to the covenant promises, having no hope without God in the world. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, the Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us, both Jew and Gentile, he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us, Jew and Gentile, us, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to you who were near, the Jews. One family. That's what we are as a church. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your economic background, your, how you grew up, the sins that you have in your past. Some of us, maybe humanly speaking, were worse than others at one point. It doesn't matter because we are one in Christ. And if you have been reconciled to God, we've been reconciled to each other. We're to be a family. Let me make two applications this morning. The gospel goes to all people, both clean and unclean. We don't tend to think in those categories, but people still do today. And let me give you an example. Uh, I have a friend uh, who was an elder in our church up in Mount Pocono, and he went over to India. Some of you might have heard this story. I only have so many good stories, so I've got to repeat it because it's, it's really good. He he went to India. We, we know a local guy over there who started an orphanage and is training local pastors. And over in India, in the, the province and the region they're in, there is this um, group of people. They used to live on one of the islands off the coast of India, and the government relocated them into this state. Now, in India, they used to have the caste system. And technically, the caste system is outlawed. But in practice, people still function like it's there, particularly in the rural areas. These people that were on this island and got transplanted to this, this location not far away, they were considered lower than the low class. They get hired by the farmers to catch the rats and the snakes. Um, rats and snakes, you know, all animals in Hindu culture are sacred. So if you're killing things, especially snakes, you get bad karma. It's like, it's like saying curses come down on you. So, so these people are not only the lower than the lowest caste, we despise them so much, we'll make them our snake catchers. All the, the curses are on them and all the, you know, all the social structure. I mean, they are at the bottom of the bottom. If, if they're, I don't know if it works quite this way, but you know, like, it's almost like if they're coming down the street and you're walking on the street, you cross the other side of the street because you don't want to get near them. You, you know, they are that unclean. They, they are you know, terrible people in that mindset. And not too long ago, a pastor went to those people, a Hindu pastor. I don't know what caste he was from originally, but he was a Hindu pastor, and he went to those people. 
And those people started believing in the gospel. So my friend goes over and, they, you know, he's meeting these pastors and they're doing pastor training. So they go off to this village where these people live, uh, the, these, these rat catchers and snake catchers. And they invite him in for a meal. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been traveling, but when you just get invited into a meal in India, you've got to be careful about what kind of bugs and viruses and, and sort of, you know, if it's washed in local water, you don't want to eat it. Uh, they wash this meal in local water and they go to serve it. But they brought out their best for this foreign elder who came to visit. And he had this choice to make. Do I eat this meal and, and risk getting really sick? Or for you know what we would consider normal health reasons, do I not eat the meal? which it wouldn't have been a sin per se to not eat the meal. But imagine what it would communicate to people in that culture that are so used to being spurned. It would have been like reinforcing that we're not really equal. And he then ate the meal and had table fellowship with these people. And and it was just a low common meal. It wasn't anything fancy, but they really did bring him his best. And it meant the world to them that he ate with them because they were the low class. They were the despised. And they heard that God loved them and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for them. And they came to believe this. And now these other Christians are saying, you're exactly the same as me. You're from America, a rich place. You have all these benefits, but you're exactly the same as me, a sinner in need of a savior. And we can sit down and fellowship together. These sorts of things, these sorts of attitudes, they still matter. We do need to be careful in in American Christianity that we don't get a, a sort of snobbishness about other cultures, about people that come from uh, different backgrounds, about people that grew up on the wrong side of the, the tracks. Sometimes suburban churches that that are outside the city have an attitude towards people that come from inside the city. Sometimes people inside the city have an attitude towards people that come from uh, the boondocks out in the country. It doesn't matter because we are all one in Christ. It doesn't matter your economic background, your social background, your, your culture. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. The Lord judges, even in the Christian, the inside of the heart, not the outside. Cleanliness is not a matter of outward appearance, but of the inward heart. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just pray that you would speak to us today. Help us to learn what Peter had to learn, that that all people can hear the gospel, that the only qualification that we have to hear the gospel is that we are a sinner and need a Savior. Uh, We thank you for the riches of the grace of God, and you remind us how far we were from you and lost from you. Even, Even if we grew up in a Christian home, just how far spiritually and morally we really were dead in our sins. And we thank you for awakening us and alivening us. In your name we pray. Amen.